I was raised Unitarian Universalist in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My home church provided a home for cultural, social, spiritual, political progressives and humanists. I'm not sure where my family would have found community otherwise. This faith tradition has shaped so much of who I understand myself to be, and it has for as long as I can remember. I remember how clearly and deeply the principles of the inherent worth and dignity of all persons and the respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part struck me as a little girl. I felt the truth of these principles in myself. From a young age, I connected these two principles and settled on a foundational truth for myself. Each of us is a part of a vast, delicate web of existence and the health of that web depends on our treating all living beings with respect, and that what we do, everything we do, matters to the well-being of the entire web of existence. I took this truth deeply seriously. It guided how I understood myself wanting to live. It has guided countless small and major decisions from childhood to today, and has been one of the most influential forces in my life. Those who know me probably would call me an environmentalist. I've been mostly vegetarian for over 20 years. I gave up car ownership for three years and commuted year-round by bike, bus, and foot, and still do most days. I work in the environmental field, and I don't have children, a choice I made at the time, driven largely by concern about how we are impacting the planet. I prefer to keep these choices and the rationale behind them quiet. I make the choices I do for personal reasons. I tell you these things to illustrate how my principles have driven my life and choices, from small to consequential, since childhood through today. Because they sprang from my principles, they didn't always feel like choices. If I believed in certain things, I felt I had to live accordingly. I've been a member of First Universalist for about 10 years. When Reverend Schroeder asked this congregation to turn our serious attention to racial justice, I instinct instinctively went along. Like most of us, my principles led me to reject the dehumanization of anyone. But unlike with my environmental choices, my life was not infused with choices grounded in this commitment. I knew saying yes to this invitation, this challenge, was what I must do if I wanted to grow further into and live in accordance with my values. Here's what I'm learning in this anti-racism journey. Whereas my commitment to environmental principles was one I took on and lived out privately, this calling challenges me to align my values in community with others. I can't live into this value alone. The very nature of racism means that such an approach would continue to fail. This is work that must be done in community, in compassion, in humility, in forgiveness, and in repeatedly returning to work together to align everything about our lives with our values. I'm grateful to have been called to this work. I'm grateful to each of you for holding me, for holding us in this work, and I'm so grateful to have at last been asked by my faith community to do the authentic, hard, life-giving work of aligning my life with my values. On July 15th of this year, 
my neighbor Justine Damon was shot and killed across the street from my house by police after calling for help because she was worried someone was being assaulted in her alley. My neighborhood was dramatically changed that night, and out of our shock and grief, a group of neighbors began meeting regularly to support ourselves and to try to understand how Justine's killing relates to the deeply racist and violent policing and criminal justice system we have in the US. Many of us have asked ourselves and have been asked by the media and others, how can this happen here? Here is my beloved community of Southwest Minneapolis, which is a well-earned reputation for being middle-class, safe, liberal, and largely white. We see on a daily basis how the city meets our needs, and most of us assumed when we called the police, our safety would be served. We reliably vote for Keith Ellison, our liberal, black, Muslim member of the US House, but we less reliably ask ourselves why we have chosen to live amongst very few people who look like Mr. Ellison. I certainly didn't when I moved here six, seven years ago. So when we're asked, how can this happen here? We are very clearly being asked, how can this happen in our middle-class, white, liberal enclave? Police shootings of unarmed citizens happen to other people, those people not us. And so we've been trying to make sure there's justice for Justine, but also trying to understand what that even means in the US in 2017. I can't imagine a scenario where she did anything to justify being shot, but neither did Philando Castile or Patrick Harmon or so many others whose families never saw any justice. What does justice mean when she's been treated with respect and dignity by the media, something that very few victims of colors receive? What does justice mean in Minneapolis after the neighbors of Jamar Clark protested in the fourth precinct to demand things I have taken for granted my entire life? To live in a community where the police actually serve them and were not tools of mass incarceration or violence. This was met with a militarized police response and attacks by armed white supremacists. Clearly plenty of Minnesotans were profoundly threatened by black people joining together and exerting real power even to merely demand things that most white Minnesotans have taken for granted our entire lives. So what does justice mean in this context? If your killer or killers are convicted but nothing else changes, that is not the sort of justice we are looking for. We are trying to work for real and lasting change that identifies police violence as a systemic problem upheld by policy and all built on an edifice of white supremacy and white cooperation because it is all too easy for many of us to be duped into thinking that it's not going to happen here to us. And it's this very notion, that very notion of us, that we white people are apart, we are different from people of color. It is this impartness, this difference, it's an insidious notion that defines our whiteness and it makes it easier to accept that they are not my neighbor to accept that some lives and voices matter less than others, and that this is a system that we can tolerate. So naming that and resisting that is what we've been trying to do. It is messy, and honestly, it feels profoundly inadequate most days, but doing nothing would be a betrayal. We've been humbled by the generosity and support of activists and clergy from around the Twin Cities who showed up for us. I think I now understand what showing up actually means. If you can, please come to a public discussion tomorrow night at Lake Harriet United Methodist Church at 7 p.m. 
where activists and some of my neighbors will be talking about police violence and its impacts on our community. Thank you. When my family joined First Universalist Church about five years ago, we were struck by the visionary goal, especially number four, the people of First Universalist Church work to build a just, loving, and sustainable world. We are a visible, influential voice, and we act to shape the larger community into a more just and equitable society. We wanted to be part of a community that worked for racial justice. I, along with many of you, attended the first racial justice training. 24 hours of training put our commitment to racial justice on firm ground. We were in conversation with each other. We were learning about whiteness and how white supremacy had insidiously permeated our minds and ways of thinking. And we got comfortable feeling uncomfortable. But fast forward to today and we are no longer in a time when education and conversation alone will stop the current onslaught of racial animus and resentment. To quote Dr. Abram Kendi, the major strategy that racial reformers have used is educational persuasion. And as a strategy for racial progress, educational persuasion has failed because it has been predicated on the false construction of the race problem. The idea that ignorance and hate lead to racist ideas, which lead to racist policies. Educational persuasion is not enough. The idea that we could educate ourselves out of a racist system is not a strategy and will not end racism in this country. We can increase awareness, but that will not end racism. Power, greed, and capitalism lead to racist policies, which lead to racist ideas, which are then used to justify the policies which serve that self-interest. Martin Luther King marched but he also boycotted Montgomery, Alabama buses. And he filed a case with the Supreme Court, which ultimately ruled that segregation on buses was unconstitutional. These three things, protest, economic boycott, and engaging with the democratic process, brought change because it was in the self-interest of the bus companies, politicians, and the Supreme Court. Lasting change in this country has only come through legislation and Supreme Court rulings. The fight for justice requires different strategies and different tools. Tools that use the currency of democracy, the power of our vote and civil engagement, and organized economic practices which impact those in power. So I ask you to think strategically. How and where are you spending your money? Do you support the Urban League? Do you support the NAACP Legal Defense Fund? How about the Anti-Defamation League, the ACLU, the Southern Law Poverty Center? These are the organizations <clears throat> that are on the front lines of policy and legislation change. Keep learning and educating yourselves. Never stop reading. I'm reading this right now. Keep protesting, keep showing up and bearing witness, but remember your wallet and your vote are the most important tools you have to fight for racial justice. Those of us who are white are not required to end racism, 
but as a people of this community, we are required to live into the constitution of our faith. Doing nothing keeps systematic racism unchallenged and in place. And we need to think differently about white privilege. Ending racial oppression will transform, transform racial white privilege into human privileges that every citizen in this country deserves, not just one group. So we need to expand the definition of standing on the side of love to acting on the side of love, spending on the side of love, boycotting on the side of love, and voting on the side of love. Like DeRay McKisson says, hope is work. Good morning, beloveds. I wanna start by just recognizing that there are folks of color in this space, and for some of you to be here is a very complicated thing. So, you are here, you are welcome. And you can take out your candy crush now because it's time for me to talk to the white people for a minute. <laughs> Beloveds, I offer you these 10 commandments for relevant reparative ministry, a reinterpretation of the Hebrew scriptures for those of us who are white. Number one, and God spoke, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods but me. Or, the freedom and flourishing of all people is our ultimate concern and our highest loyalty. Our faith's central premise is that we must shape the world so that every person can fulfill the promise of our inborn capacity for wholeness and love. But, such a word, world, in the words of Langston Hughes, is the land that never has been yet, and yet must be. As we grapple with the white supremacy that is so deeply intertwined with the helices of our tradition's DNA, we know it is a leap of faith to commit our lives and our work to building another world with no proof that such a world is possible. And yet, it is the only thing worthy of our deepest allegiance. Number two, you shall not have graven images, or we shall not worship the structures of our faith over its spirit. Unitarian Universalism is a core set of beliefs and practices which over time has been enshrined in institutions and practices. And it is heartbreakingly clear that our current incarnation prevents us from actually living out our deepest commitments. When we worry more about the financial risks of making reparations to black Unitarian Universalists than about the spiritual costs of not making them. When our congregations refrain from taking bold moral stances because some members might quit and the pledge drive might fail. When we are more committed to preserving our institutions and culture 
than to creating a world in which all of us are free, we commit idolatry, the sin of mistaking that which is finite for that which is ultimate and most worthy. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, or we shall not claim to be allies without being willing to be transformed. My friend, Caitlin Breedlove, regularly poses the clarion question of her former organization, Southerners on New Ground. She asks, are you willing to be transformed in service of the work? Now, I know our hearts yearn to say yes to this question, individually, congregationally, denominationally, and yet it will require us to surrender a spiritual practice as which most of us who are white are novices. But when we decide that what the world needs us to be is more important than what we are already comfortable being, we will exchange our fear and our fragility for the deep belonging and belovedness that come when we collaboratively build a different reality. Number four, you shall honor the Sabbath, or we shall engage in spiritual practices that prepare us to show the hell up. Our faith and our world need us white people to bring thick skins, tender hearts, and real skills. We're being asked to take our shifts for the revolution, and the question is whether we will be ready to clock in. So it's time, my friends, for some intensive spiritual training. What are we doing individually, congregationally, denominationally to strengthen the muscles of resilience that will allow us to hear and believe hard truths from our comrades of color, even when we don't particularly like the tone in which those critiques are delivered? How will we become humble and courageous enough to say yes, even when we don't know that we will be either safe or right. Number five, you shall honor your father and mother, or we shall claim our history in its fullness. Whiteness robs white people of our sense of belonging to the arc of history and the web of humanity. When we awaken to the white supremacy culture, the water in which we swim, our instinct then is often to disassociate ourselves even further because owning our lineage also means owning the sins of our forebears. But we must reclaim our ancestors and our history, both that with which nurtured death and that which planted the seeds of life. Susan B. Anthony's fierce feminism and her intense racism. Our congregation's civil rights work and our white flight. Our denominational commitments to being anti-racist and our defunding of the very work that would be required to do so. White folks, our history is not our fault, but it is our responsibility. In accepting this, we can find a sustaining connection to our ancestors who did resist, 
who did struggle, who passed along the unfinished work of their lives for us. Number six, <clears throat> you shall not kill, or we shall refrain from doing harm, and when we do, we shall make amends. Theological anthropology is a fancy term of talking about the way that given religions understand human nature. Are we fundamentally good or basically sinful? Now, Unitarian Universalists have a very rosy theological anthropology. You might sum it up as saying, from love we are and to love we shall return. But our rightful resistance to religion that told people that they were sinful and unloved has left our theology and our rituals and our leadership ill-equipped to respond effectively to behaviors that are sinful and unloving. We know intent is less important than impact, right? We know it's more important that your foot hurts than that I didn't really mean to step on it. But our ministry as and with white people then is to do less harm in the first place and then when we do, to help our people engage in rituals and processes of confession atonement, and reparations long before we seek absolution. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery or we shall be faithful to those whose personhood is most consistently dismissed and denied. The radical strain of Christian thinking known as liberation theology reminds us of God's preferential option for the poor and oppressed. Now, we might call our own theology liberation universalism. And in that liberation universalism, we might say the only hell there is is here on this earth where we are called to both save and be saved by one another. Now, such a theology requires that our deepest loyalty be with those who are farthest from the center of power, many of whom will never be Unitarian Universalists. This is not about browning the hues in the pews, y'all. The dynamics of power mean that we cannot credibly side with both the system of policing and the movement for black lives. We cannot prioritize both including the Trump voter and telling our undocumented trans congregant that her life is of supreme worth. We have to choose whose vision we affirm and follow because a world in which we are safe and free is better for all of us. Number eight, you shall not steal or we shall learn to take up less space and hoard fewer resources. The payoff for doing scary things in public is not that we will be seen as special, but that we will be seen as trustworthy. When we show up at the Black Lives Matter vigil or the Fight for 15 protest, will we leverage our privilege and introduce the reporters who wanna to talk to the nice yellow shirt people to the black and brown organizers who put the march together? 
How are sanctuary congregations like this one also giving away money from our endowments, giving meeting space to community organizers and accompanying the undocumented to deportation hearings? Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor or we shall trust those who have known oppression. Many of us who are white respond to the lived experience of our siblings of color with incredulity and interrogation. But let's make it plain. When those whose humanity is regularly denied tell us that they have been harmed, here's what we do. We stop, we listen, and we believe them. When we are decentered or confronted with anger, our discomfort is not equivalent to the trauma of living within a system designed to diminish and destroy our siblings of color. We gotta get comfortable with discomfort. And number 10, you shall not covet or we shall trust that our needs will be supplied. For those of us who are white, our ministry now is to preach the good news that yes, everything is falling apart. Hallelujah. But as it does, the possibility of transformation is born. We shall not be neutral and non-anxious because neutrality is a fiction and anxiety is inevitable. Rather, we shall be faithful, trusting that we can harness courage and clarity even while we are anxious. That we decenter ourselves without dis disengaging, that we can wield our faith in service of the grand project of collective liberation and universal salvation. Thank you, dear ones, for the privilege of sharing these commandments. And I need you to know that all of these things have been learned and taught to me by organizers, friends, comrades, family of color. My prayer is that they help those of us who are white to be worthy of this faith that our siblings of color against all odds have proclaimed is worthy of redemption. May we all be instruments of bringing that faith, that world that has never been yet into glorious being. Blessed be Ashe and Amen.